1: Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, my guest on Kermode on Film is Sagan Akinola, the brilliant composer who is perhaps best known for his work on Doctor Who, but who, for my money, did his finest work on two movies by Shola Amu, A Moving Image and the brilliant The Last Tree. I spoke to Sagan Akinola at his home, because obviously we're still all under lockdown, about composing for film, television and what the future holds. So it's my great pleasure to welcome to this uh, online MK3D, Sagan Akinola. Sagan, I, I wish I was, we were doing this in person, but obviously we're still in the middle of you know, the dog ends of lockdown. So a virtual hello to you. How are you and what have you been doing during the recent weeks and months?
2: A uh, virtual hello to you too. You. Uh, it's great to be here and great to be chatting. Um, it's been an interesting few, few months for me. It, it feels strange to say months because part of me still thinks it's March. (laughs) 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 My sense of time is just completely and utterly off. Um, But I was one of those who was working on um, a project which still had some filming to do. So obviously once the lockdown came in, everything got shut down and it was all paused. Um, And it's quite unusual to have everything just just ripped away very quickly. And of course it's been the same for so many other people in the industry. Um, So it was really a case of trying to find ways to keep busy. I know myself well enough to know that I do need to keep busy. So uh, it's a good opportunity to uh, have weekends and evenings, um, which has been very nice. And also just try to, I guess, the thing I've tried to do is basically feed the more technical side and the creative side as well. Kind of keep on top of both elements to the work that I do and try and improve on the technical side and improve on the creative side and listen to more music and, and check things out and just keep growing as an, well, as a composer, as an artist, really.
1: You said um, it's important to keep those, uh, the downtimes, the weekends. Now I'm just looking at you from the uh, feed that I've got and I can see that you're surrounded, you've got a keyboard. You're, are you in an <laughs> office? Because as you can see from where I am, yeah. This is my this contains everything I own in the whole world, and it is about the size of a of a cat box, but the advantage of it is is it means that at the end i can i can go I can leave, and I think that's the thing yes. that's kept me sane so are you in an in your office or are you just in the corner of the living
2: room? no no, this is where I work this is where maybe the magic happens but certainly the music happens yeah (laughs) um here so it's it's working from home is is very usual for me the unusual aspect has been just not seeing anyone for a very long time even you know popping out to the shops has been (laughs) different experience
1: so do you manage to do most of your composition from home usually anyway
2: Yes, yeah. Unless I'm working with another musician or I'm going into the edit suites or anything, I basically do everything here. So that's everything from, well, I'm actually writing some notes and some instrumentalists are going to play it to also experimenting. And I do a fair amount of um, recording bizarre sounds and and making them a bit more (laughs) bizarre and using them within the work that I do. So I do um, all of that here as well
1: so as as if you were speaking to a child or a small labrador puppy what have you got around you i can see a keyboard but i mean is it a keyboard and then and then a computer system or what 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 are you surrounded by so i'm surrounded by yes
2: i've got this kind of keyboard here which doesn't actually hold any sounds but it basically um controls a whole load of sounds on my on my computer here um so that might be it might be like a piano sound, but it could also be some strings, or I don't know, a recorder or a guitar, whatever it might be. Um, it, I have quite a minimal setup. I'm not really surrounded by lots and lots of stuff, um, but I am surrounded by um, in, instruments. So I have over here. Look, I'll even show you. I've got yeah, one of my one of my drums from Nigeria, just <laughs> here, uh, and I've got loads of. Tambourines, as you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can never a... have too
1: many tambourines. No,
2: no. I mean, I literally found one the other day <laughs> in another area of where I live <laughs> that I, did, I didn't even realize I had. So I'd forgotten. If you put two of them in a cupboard, you come back
1: three years later. There's ten. It's a really yeah. weird thing. They've got like a whole life cycle. It's really, really
2: strange. <laughs> it, they, they multiply <laughs> on I command. Um, so I have a whole load of like little bits. I've got, I've got uh, a bell over there. Okay, I feel a little bit like a creative who has stuff everywhere. <laughs> there's maybe a tiny bit of that, but it looks quite organised. I want to um, show. I want to show you this thing by just very
1: quick, quickly moving my computer. So, okay, so in my office, this is apart from the Elvis bust, which you can see up there, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> okay, so there's my double bass. Okay, fine. Which yes. I, which is now. But the thing is, this I'm very, very, I'm a very cack-handed double bassist. So I'm also surrounded by the detritus of bases that I've broken over the years, such as. So I mean, this was this was the neck of a double bass that was built for me by a guy in Manchester. He he built it out of a wardrobe because I had a habit of breaking ones that I that I bought. And he said, "I'll break you one that you can't. I'll build you one you can't break." Turn out, it wasn't true. Yeah. (laughs) So I've got like a kind of graveyard of bits of broken instruments around because I'm very very you know I'm very clumsy and cack handed. The reason that I um that you particularly sprung into my mind was because. I recently did a, an introduction for the BFI to The Last Tree, and I was just oh, yeah. watching the film again, and I was—I remembered how much I had loved the score the first time around. And in fact, I think I had got in touch with you at the time to say, look, I love this music. Can you please send me uh, some of it? Um, yeah, yeah. How, just get us up to speed with how you got to where you are. Where, where did you begin with your compositions?
2: Um, um Thank you for the very kind words about uh, The last Tree. It was an amazing experience working on it. I mean, my, my background is basically that I learned the piano from a really young age. Um, my dad came home one day with a keyboard and said, do you want to learn the piano? And I said, yes. And I'm not, I'm not actually sure if I showed much interest before then or not. So I have no idea what was behind that, but it was obviously the best decision ever. Um, and my household growing up was very musical, not from necessarily the, the perspective that everyone was playing and learning an instrument, but yeah. everyone loved music. And music was just a very natural part of my household, as it is for many other Nigerians. Music and dancing is, is just, it's just part of everyday life. Um, but I think looking back on things, particularly now, I realised that, there was a wide variety of music at home, and I don't think I really, I don't think I really appreciated that until very, very recently, um, because my dad was listening to all sorts. I mean, like Michael Jackson, U two, like all sorts, uh, alongside um, more traditional Nigerian music. And my um, my mum was listening to stuff that was quite purely Nigerian music and right. my sisters were listening to things that were quite purely American. It was very mixed for me. And I was also growing up in church and it was quite a kind of rocky poppy vibe going on there. So it was very eclectic. And that basically continued throughout my musical education because I started to learn the drums, which is the instrument that I loved. That was my um yeah, that's really where my my love um, was as an instrumentalist and that came from from church and then I started getting lessons and um, as I kind of went through school then I started to play in all sorts of contexts I was in uh, the orchestra I was in the big band I was in the small band I was in the percussion group I was in the wind and brass group um, and doing lots of reading so I basically had an education that was very rounded um, which I'm really grateful for because it wasn't purely classical when it wasn't purely jazz or, or rock and pop it was basically bits of everything and uh, we were also doing musicals so I was playing a lot of musicals as well and I think that really forms the basis of all the work that I do now because I love the idea of being able to move around stylistically but also carrying traits and um, carrying an idea of who you are as, as an artist around in those different um, areas.
1: How did you first break into film and TV? What was your first? Can you remember your first credit?
2: Yeah, my first credit was um Panorama. And I it, it was quite a funny one. I think I I met someone who then was stood next to someone else who just happened to be working um working as a journalist, I think, if I remember correctly. And we just got talking and then kind of went from there. And he happened to be working on something and was like, well do you have any suggestions? I was like, Oh, well, you know, why don't I write you something and this is it. And that was the, that was the beginning really, um, doing that. And then essentially, (laughs) this is often the case, you can't do anything until you've done something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So (laughs) that was the like, great. I've got the first one and now I can, I can build upon that. And, um, the BBC is an amazing organization and, um, They have a lot of stuff going on. And once you've done one thing in one place, you can eventually make your way over to other areas. Um, And then I was able to go on from there and do more and do... um, Black and British, A Forgotten History was probably one of the first things I did that really got a few people to take notice. Um, And that, again, led to more work and and eventually also led to working on Doctor Who.
1: And you sort of throw that away as if it's uh, eventually working on Doctor Who, like it's, yeah. So let's just let's just give that the gravitas that it deserves. Working on round of drum roll, please. Yeah, <laughs> Doctor Who. Oh, come on! So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, that was um, a Wednesday morning. I got the phone call, and I love uh, that you remember what day it was. Uh, yeah, I, do you know what? There are certain moments in your life you just can't you just can't forget at all, and it was just completely out of the blue, had this phone call saying, can we pass your number on to the producers for Doctor Who? Because they're interested in um, you know, looking at your work and and looking at you to be the composer for Doctor Who. Complete shock for me. I had no idea about anything. Obviously, I said yes and left it there and didn't really expect to hear anything uh, very quickly. But I actually did um, then couple of days later, had a chat with the exec producer and then set up a chat with Chris Chibnall, the new showrunner, a few days after that. And we just clicked immediately, like very, very genuinely and very immediately, just really, really clicked. Um, And I had, of course, seen Broadchurch and was a big fan of his his work. Um, And he'd seen... I mean, really, to his credit, he knew my music extremely well. I mean, the the obscure, bizarre things that are in the far corners of the internet somewhere he had found <laughs> and he had heard. Um, so he really, he really understood what I was about musically. Um, okay. And then we, we just had a chat about Doctor Who and what he was looking to do with it and Jodie Whitaker's Doctor, what, what was the new Doctor like and so forth. And then I kind of wrote a little bit of music sent it uh, a few days later sent it over to them Waited um a few days had another chat with him and then a few days later I, I I had the job so it was it was quite a quick turnaround in some ways but it was very intentional and it was quite intense as well did you have to
1: keep pinching yourself and going it's doctor who
2: Yeah, constantly for about the next three months. (laughs) Because it was all I mean, I got the job long before it was ever announced. Um, And it was just, it was just really bizarre. I actually remember I think um, that evening, it was uh, Christmas 2017. And I, the bit I missed out is that I was in Tesco when I got the call from Chris um, <laughs> I was uh, there to buy some mulled wine, as you do for a nice Christmas evening. Yeah. And um, I didn't—I kind of thought I didn't think I was going to hear from him late. Yeah, by that point, because I knew I knew I was going to hear quite soon. I hadn't heard anything. Thought I'd just go and you know buy stuff for Christmas evening. And um, was in yeah, was in Tesco and got the call and was just like. But everything was very strange, and um, when I say Christmassy evening, I have to I have to describe it for you because, of course, there was more wine, there were Christmassy biscuits, and there was uh, Die Hard. (laughs) the the traditional Christmas film. Of course, it's well
1: done for saying that it is a Christmas film. You know, Bruce Willis says it isn't. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, no, no. But we can forgive
2: him for that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And I actually remember just watching parts of it and just not being able to concentrate every few minutes because I just remembered, oh my gosh, I had this phone call. That actually happened. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was very surreal. Very surreal.
1: I think it's, you know, the idea of working on, I mean, Doctor Who has been around for as long as I can remember. I mean, Patrick Troughton was my first Doctor Who, so I go back Mm. that far. And I just think the idea of being asked to work on anything like that is quite mind-boggling. So my other question on it would be, how much freedom do you have and how much do they say to you, look, we love everything you do, but this is what we want it to sound like?
2: I mean, almost total freedom. So certainly in terms of setting up new sounds, so... My remit, if you will, when I came on board was, there's going to be a new sound to Doctor Who. It's going to be your sound. Figure out what that sound is. Um, and it was simply a case of, it just won't be what it was before. But whatever that is, you, that is, it's got to be you and it's got to be your voice. And they really they really stressed that, actually. And really made it clear that they wanted me to bring myself to it. Um, and they wanted it to be fresh. And, and they let me have the time to experiment and try different things out to find the sound that we got to. Um, And then from that point, of course, I mean, if they don't like it, they're going to say, no, we don't like that. Can it be slightly different? But uh, they did like it. And I started writing character themes um, for the certain characters um, who would be in it throughout the series. And they liked all of that. And they liked the, the sound world I'd come up with. And then, Beyond that, of course, every episode we have a discussion about the music, um, especially because with me coming board and with the new musical direction, the other aspect is that the music was going to be changing every week, depending Mm -hmm. on where the story was taking place. So we we have a lot of in-depth conversations about the music and where it's going, but what it's doing and what it's saying and are we... Are we kind of taking inspiration from anywhere? Um, we have taken a lot, a lot of inspiration from different places musically. Um, probably the most obvious one being the start of Series 12 and the Bond, very, very John Barry influence score. Um, so we have in-depth conversations about that. But that's, even within that, there's a lot of freedom because um, we'll be talking about how I'm responding to it or any thoughts I'm having alongside any thoughts that Chris Chibnall's having and Matt Straubens is having. Um, It's it's a very good collaboration. It's really, um, there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of trust and respect.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
1: Is there a huge difference between writing for the small screen and writing for the big screen? Because, I mean, I'm very conscious, particularly now at the end of, you know, three months, three and a half months of, uh, of watching everything at home, that firstly, I've seen loads of television. I've watched all of The Wire. I've watched all of Breaking Bad. I know these are all old, but, you know, I, I hadn't caught up with them. Yeah, And I'm struck that the the scope of television and the scope of cinema, they are very comparable now. You see things mm. on television that have, I mean, Doctor Who is a perfect example. You know, it, it's, it's about as broad a canvas as you can get. So is there a difference when you're composing for the what I think of as the big screen and the small screen of television?
2: Sometimes, yes, but it, it, it differs. And I think for me personally, it's not so much about well, it's probably about a couple of things, actually, being really honest. I think sometimes it's really about the story that you're telling and how big that story is and, and what it can take. And that's the same, whether it's the big screen or whether it's the small screen, but certain, story, certain sounds musically, they just sound too big for TV because right. the story that you're telling is, is not as big as that. But equally, that can be totally the same um, on the big screen, where it's just like, well, you don't need this huge, massive orchestra for this particular story. So there is an element of it's not really different at all. But what I find is different is the experience. It's how people are going to be experiencing that particular story. And it is very different, I think, when when, you, when you're working on a film that you know is going to get a theatrical release. It's going to be in cinemas. People will be sat... In a dark room all together, and there will be surround sound, and and that's where their, their focus is going to be primarily. I think it is a bit different to actually then working on something for TV whereby you know people are going to be in the comfort of their own homes. And it's not to say that it's worse, it's just slightly different. And I think that does I think that can make a bit of a difference in terms of how things are approached. Because I know that, for example, with the last tree, there are certain things that I did with the score that I wouldn't have done um, if it was just for t- a TV release, but I knew it was going to be in cinemas with great five one sound or seven one sound um, and everyone in the dark room experiencing it. And that did influence um, the approach for sure.
1: Shola Amu who's spoken, um, you know, so passionately about working with you. Can you say something about your working relationship with Shola? Oh,
2: uh, it's just, it's just brilliant. I mean, he's just, a phenomenal director um, himself, and he's phenomenal to work with. And that's, you don't always get both of those. Um, that's, that's the truth of it. But we have a wonderful uh, experience working together. Uh, we have a lot of fun. We work really, really hard as well. We work extremely hard because whatever you hear is probably about 10% of what we've worked on. Yeah. Um, but that's because we have a, a wonderful experimentation on everything that we work on. It really is a case of trying a scene or a sequence in a lot of different ways, trying uh, music that is sometimes very, very different to try and find the right sound and the right approach um, to whatever we're working on. So we do work really hard, but it's it's not from a perspective of either of us not knowing what we like or what we think is working, but really about finding what's right for for the story. And the great thing about that is that Shalaz is also up for trying anything. You know, if it's a case of, well, let's try this thing. It's a bit of a crazy idea, but let's go for it. He's totally, totally um, up for doing that. So, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those relationships where we know going into it, okay, we're going to work really hard, but um, there's such a great deal of uh, respect and and trust and knowing that whatever happens, we will get there and we will find the best version of whatever it is that we're trying to um, do and trying to work on. No, 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 no. I've not finished talking to Get the fuck out of my way.
1: Oh, you think I'm you? I call my boys, you're fucked, you hear me? Call them. You really think those boys are your friends?
2: You've got every right to be angry. My parents leave me because they don't care enough about me to raise. Fuck them. with me, man. Send me off to encourage country to see people
1: I have my own. I mean, it. I would be angry. They left you, you for being angry. Fuck they me. didn't care enough to raise. Fuck with you. me, man. <sighs> so don't fuck with me. You hear me? So don't fuck with me. So don't fuck with me, hey, so Fuck with me. I wasn't the only person who, in reviewing Last Tree, pointed out how important the music was. Um, as a result of Last Tree, did it, did it open opportunities for you? Because it was, you know, a, a properly theatrical... I mean, an astonishing leap up from a moving image, I have to say. I just think it was just like... That was such a, a different level of film. How did the response to that affect you?
2: I think it's been very interesting because I, I think that um, a lot of people will... Know me mainly for Doctor Who, and will kind of think that that's the thing that opens up um, so many doors for me. And of course, it does; it, it does have an impact. But I actually find people talk to me more about the score of the Last Tree um, than anything else. When when I tend to go in and have a conversation or meet someone new or um, talk about ju- a ju- new I ju- I ju-
1: just like to say I was there first. I don't care about all these <laughs> other people. I mean, I'm thrilled. I'm it's great. I was there first. You know,
2: <laughs> well, you know, you have to uh, <laughs> own up to these things. <laughs> um, yeah, I always, I, I always find that filmmakers um, actually talk about the last tree um, first. And I think, at first, that did surprise me. Not not from any perspective other than just, as I say, particularly if anyone's doing a write up and I come up, it's, it's usually Doctor Who, and I completely understand that because it's Doctor Who it's it's a huge show globally Um, but I think there's something actually musically about The Last Tree that um, resonates with people which I'm of course really really pleased about and resonates with filmmakers as well and so it has definitely opened up um, more doors and more opportunities
1: did you, um, did you have any sort of uh, particular emotional responses to the loss of Ennio Morricone? Because it was only a week or so ago. But uh, I've done a Scala show since then. Obviously, you and I have Scala in common. The amount of people that have got in touch about my favourite piece of film music is, and, and, and I mean, for a start, there's just so much to choose from. <laughs> did, you ever, did, did you ever meet him? Does, was he an influence on you in any way?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely an influence. And I'm I'm so glad that I saw him when he was touring. I think it was about five years ago, and he was at the O2, if I remember correctly. And I'm just so grateful that I could get to see him um, when I I did, because he's one of those composers who a lot of people um, really resonate with his work. And some people really know him for a certain... um, a certain part of what his, he's done, which is completely understandable, but he's just done so much, and I think yeah, for me personally, it's his sure, it's his um, his audacity as a composer. Because I just think some of his some of the things he does, you just think, why on earth would you think to do this here, or why on earth would you think to put this instrument with that instrument? Why would that be the thing? that works for this story. But it does work, and it works so well, and it's just, it's so original. Um, and for me, I think that's thats the thing that I think of first when I think of Ennio Morricone, which is not to say that, oh, he doesn't write amazing and beautiful themes or anything. He absolutely does, but I think that's the area that particularly, I think, ignites uh, a real passion in me um, for trying to... sometimes not the most obvious routes to um, telling the story um, and to trying to do something really interesting musically as well.
1: Neil Brand, the musician and composer, was talking about what made Morricone special and he said... The thing that you don't notice is how long and complex his main themes are. He said, You know, Leone would always give him the space. He would say, You know, create the piece of music and I'll cut the scene to you. He said that, that in his opinion, a lot of uh, modern film composition is riffs, you know, four bars, something like that. But Morricone would compose lengthy, complicated cycling patterns. And it is true that when you listen to the Morricone soundtrack albums, whether it's a soundtrack of Exorcist to The Heretic, or whether you're listening to the stuff he did for Battle of Algiers or Cinema Paradiso or The Mission, none of which sound the same, all of yes. which sound that they were done by different composers, but there is that one thread that they have very complicated and lengthy main tune cycles, which I think is kind of remarkable.
2: It is, it is, and he was a real master of it as well, because I think it's, it's also about doing it in a way which feels effortless. Which is not easy it's not easy to create a theme that has this real arc that has um, almost its own story really to it that it has a beginning and a middle and an end maybe more parts um, and to make it feel effortless and to make it feel natural and work to picture and he was a real he was a real um, master at doing that and it's one of those aspects of his music which, it's easy to overlook. As we say, it's easy to look at so many other areas, but I think that just shows that his music was, uh, really, it was complex, but not complex in a way which, um, left any piece of music bereft of of emotion. It's not that it's just that there are lots of elements and lots of parts to his music that made it so great. It wasn't one thing or, or just two things. Um, and also that it works on so many levels that anyone could listen to it and enjoy it. And if you really dug down into the details, you could also enjoy it um, and really find some, some brave decisions.
1: Who are a few of the other composers that you're a big fan of? Who are your favourites?
2: Oh, uh, good question. Um who, uh, so many people, um, again, I think because of that whole growing up with lots of different music, I love, I really love composers who can move around musically, um, whether that's Quincy Jones or whether that's uh, someone like John Powell, much more more than an example. Of course, the greats: Hans Zimmer and John Williams, uh, and also moving to classical music as well. Um, lots of influence from there, John Adams, um, Zanarkis, Ravel, uh, lots and lots of popular music. Um, whether that is people like Earth Wind of Fire, huge influence on me. Um, Adele, uh, lots of producers as well, like Walter Nasif who produced a lot of the kind of um Mariah Carey banners. He also produced things like The single from Hercules, um, Mm -hmm. going the distance. Yeah, it's a really wide range, and I think because for me, the one thing that I did miss out is that I initially wanted to be a record producer. I mean, I basically wanted to attempt to be Quincy Jones. Uh, He was a huge, huge influence. Um, And then, kind of, yeah, yeah, (laughs) aim high, maybe you'll get to like it. and that kind of just ended up skewing slightly to film, but that I just kind of then going, ended up going more and more in that direction. I think that's because I was, I was doing a lot of reading. I loved reading. I loved stories. I was going to the cinema um, and it just moved more and more in that, that direction. So my influences are really quite wide because there's as much about the production of Quincy Jones as they are yeah. you know his arrangements and work with Frank Sinatra and everyone. Um, so, yeah, quite a wide range of musicians. Can you remember the
1: first pop record you ever bought?
2: I'm really trying to think. I, I feel like it was possibly... Uh, I feel like it may have been Pink. But I don't know for sure, because I'm not sure that I can entirely... I remember. I have an early memory... But then I also have memories of the Spice Girls. So it may, be, <laughs> it may have been the Spice Girls. I genuinely have no idea.
1: Okay. Pink, oh. is de- Pink is definitely a cooler choice than Alvin Stardust, but, you know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Different age, they,
1: you know. Yeah. And maybe it was the
2: Spice Girls, as I say. <laughs> 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 so that you said world.
1: when we began this, you said that, um, you know, lockdown happened. You're in the middle of doing something. Can you tell us yeah. what we're going to hear your music on in the near future?
2: Uh, I can't talk about the project itself because it is not, uh, yeah, there's nothing, nothing, nothing there to be known yet, but it, it is a feature documentary great, um, and it's a really, really great, it's a really great um, feature, very excited about it, um, great director and a great team. So yes, there will be something in the feature doc space uh, in the near future.
1: Okay. When will you be able to tell us about that?
2: I I genuinely have no idea. And I, I know that I know that very well because my agent asked the production company and uh <laughs> they yeah, this now is not the moment for any grand announcements. But um yes, once they've announced, then we'll be able to talk about it.
1: And how soon before you're able to be back in a room with other musicians and I mean, do you have I, I have no idea what Musical ensembles would be possible at the moment?
2: Well, the good news is that recording is happening in London and orchestral recordings are happening. Um, there are some very, very strict guidelines, of course, um, but at Air Studios in London and at Abbey Road, they are doing orchestral recording, which is really great news. Um, studios are open engineers are working musicians are working so many people for whom um, everything stopped a few months ago so i i'm pleased to know that we can get back to work and in fact this feature documentary i will return to work on it very very soon um because everything's picking up again so i will get to be back into a studio with musicians in the next few months which i'm very excited about it's
1: i mean it, it's, it's a totally different thing but i mean i just play in a in a four piece band and it's driving me nuts. This is the longest we haven't played together in my whole life. I was, I was started being in bands when I was 12. I've never gone, never gone three months without, playing with you know because that's what I did I never played football didn't go to parties didn't have friends I was very happy instantly I yeah. <laughs> play, played in bands my whole life it was never any good but uh you know but was but was very 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 dedicated and uh and so you know this is the longest period that I haven't played music with other people for and it's driving me nuts because yeah. there's only so much you can do with a bass solo after a while it's you know it's it's just terrible so I'm really looking forward to it I'd also like to officially invite you when we're back in the BFI South bank whenever that reopens up again to come on to the live show because it would be lovely to do this oh. in person as well so maybe when you come on you can tell us more about this feature documentary that you're working on that I'm now intrigued by and I will now spend some time racking my brains
2: trying to figure out what it is <laughs> that would be that would be a lot of, of fun and also just say I've had a little bit of your bass playing and it's great so uh, yeah let's not do a disservice to your playing I was very impressed I got,
1: rest. I got given this. I just, I had a birthday, and I got given this thing. Um, I have this. We have this rule that you try and learn a new instrument every year. Okay, and wow. no, no, but I mean, not, not to be brilliant, just to be able yeah. to play a tune out of it. Okay, yeah. so there's a load of instruments that I can play very, very badly, very, very badly, including the bagpipes. Definition of a gentleman is somebody who can play the bagpipes but doesn't. I'm somebody who can't play the bagpipes but still does. And somebody gave me a, a, a lower F harmonica, which I've never had before. I'd only ever had it. And I'm just—I've fallen in love with it. I've just oh, so that's man. that's when so when we come out of this, that will be the thing. Everything I do will be on a lower F. From yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your your lockdown instrument. Yeah. <laughs> so if you write something and you find yourself—I mean, you know, David Arnold suddenly found he needed a chromatic harmonica play. He'd turn to me if you write something that needs a lower F. Sagan, I'm your man. I... Uh,
2: that will be a challenge for me and yeah, it'll be accepted it, I must say
1: be a challenge for everybody yeah, <laughs> in the words of the great Barry Manilow i live through my music i hope you can live through it too or i suffered <laughs> i suffered for my art now it's your turn um, thank you so much for joining us it's been lovely talking to you and i can't wait to do this again in the flesh when all this stuff is behind us thank you very much the great Sagan Akinola. pleasure
2: thank you so much for having me and yes it would be great to chat more in future
1: That was me talking to the great Sagan Akinola. I can't wait to hear more about that documentary project. If you want to see a video of some of that interview, there will be highlights from it in a forthcoming MK3D online show. You can find those at YouTube on the BFI channel. And bear in mind that there is a new MK3D online going up next week. Next Monday, it goes live at 8 o'clock. My guests on that show will be the comedian Shazia Mirza, the actor and comedian Simon Pegg, the director Salvador Simo, and the great Brian Cox. No, not that one, the real Brian Cox. That's all on the new MK3D show, which goes online Monday at 8 o'clock on the BFI's YouTube channel. Thanks ever so much for downloading this co film podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to tell your friends, and why not visit our Patreon page, which has loads of exclusive extras, including video content. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies.
0: only from rustolium